Hello, device listeners. Welcome to Device Interviews. In this interview, I get to sit down with Wendy Benchley and discuss Jaws by her late husband, Peter. Now, we talk about the about the threats to sharks and current conservation efforts, as well as some really, really great stories of her and Peter's crusade for shark conservation. So you know what? Let's just jump right in. You know, Emily, thank you very much for asking me to do um, this podcast. We're happy to have I, you. I'm really de- yeah, I'm, I'm really delighted to um, be talking with you and in order to try to interest people in ocean conservation issues. And um, I've, I've been a lucky soul all my life because... Uh, I've been involved in many nonprofit groups, the Environmental Defense Fund and Wild Aid and Ocean Conservancy and others that have done a lot of ocean work. And um, we were especially lucky, Peter and I, that he wrote a book that got us out onto the ocean. <laughs> there are not many writers who can who can go and pursue uh, the subject of their book and have another fascinating aspect to their life. So uh, that was changed my life forever, uh, being out on the ocean with Peter, doing expeditions, learning about sharks, and seeing the wonder and glory of great white sharks and also of the ocean. So I, I, that was part of my life. I also was um, a mother and an activist in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I was elected to political office at Princeton Borough Councilwoman for 10 years, and um and a Mercer County freeholder for a few years. So I was very much a part of a community working on affordable housing and environmental issues and, and LEED certified buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But my real love has always been the ocean and conservation issues. And so that's what Peter and I certainly did together. And then I've carried on uh, with for the last <clears throat> 12 years. Yeah, because yeah, you were working with conservation um, organizations before JAWS hit it, kind of, before JAWS became into large popularity, weren't you? I, well, JAWS was, let me just think about that. Um, so JAWS was in 1974, and I was in Peter and I were in Pennington, New Jersey. Peter had been writing speeches for President Johnson. And then when he didn't run for office, Peter decided to do freelance work. So we moved to Pennington, New Jersey. And I was very involved then in starting recycling campaigns and working with the League of Conservation Voters, League of Women Voters, sorry. Mm. And uh, so, so then when Jaws hit, we were definitely... Um, out and into the ocean, and we moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and then that's where I eventually got involved in in politics. I was on the Environmental Defense Fund board for 18 years. Uh, that was through the 90s. And they so do some amazing work. Because, you know, my, yeah, uh, my early life when the kids were tiny and just newborns, I was basically a League of Women Voters person and a mama and um, and working on recycling issues. All right. So moving a little bit forward, what do you, uh, based on uh, the work that you've been doing for the past, you know, 30, 40 years, what would you say is the greatest threat to shark populations in the current age? Oh, I, I think 
certainly the shark finning that goes on for shark fin soup. And um, that that has been just devastating to the shark population. Could you um, just define shark finning a little bit more thoroughly? Oh, shark finning is just an odious, uh, odious practice where sharks are caught and while they're still alive, their fins are hacked off with knives. And then in most cases, the sharks are thrown back into the water to die a slow, suffocating death. And it's just astonishing when you think that there are, well, at least 70 million sharks that are caught and finned this way. Because they can't move without their fins, right? Like, so, like, the the reason why they die is because they're thrown back into the water and because they don't have their fins, they can't swim and they need to swim to be able to breathe, right? Well, the reason, of course, the Mm -hmm. reason they, the reason sharks die is because they bleed to death and they can't swim and can't get air. So, um, there they are dying a slow, painful death. And, um, I have, I've, I've worked for many years with Wild Aid, which is an organization that's based in San Francisco, and they have just done a spectacular job uh, using Asian icons like Jackie Chan and Yao Ming to do very professional, absolutely brilliant um, public service announcements that have saturated China and other Asian countries on television, radio, billboards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And what they do is they are educating the consumers to let them know that sharks, 70 million sharks are killed every year for this soup that they eat. And this campaign has worked because people honestly just half of them did not know uh, they thought it was a, a shark wing that would grow back that was cut off, or else they didn't really think at all. So this campaign has been very successful, and the demand for shark fin soup has gone down in China by 80% in the last, since 2014. So the, the hope is that there will be less sharks caught and killed this way as the years go along. So we're, we're now working with other countries uh, because the demand for shark fin soup is still around, uh, not only in our country, uh, but also in Thailand and, and other Asian countries. So we've got a long way to go, but Wild Aid has been really very successful with their campaign. So there is hope yeah. what we all need in our lives. Uh, as we work along in the ocean, we need many of these victories to to make some progress. Um, that's amazing. I didn't actually know that they had such an effective campaign. Um, do you want to comment at all about, because um, I know that one of the other great conservation efforts uh, that's, or rather one of the great conservation uh, hills that we have to kind of climb over for to help shark populations is uh, bycatch, where... Uh, these animals are kind of caught uh, indirectly in other fishing gear um, and just tossed aside, or the fins are taken and they're tossed aside, even though they're not the target animal. Um, has there been any efforts to help cull, uh, like to reduce the amount of sharks that are caught via bycatch? You know, 
I am really not up on exactly okay. what efforts. I do know that I did hear when I was listening to um, the video about the <clears throat> White Shark Cafe uh, when they were looking at um, when they were looking at various uh, fishing methods. They said that the long lining was the most destructive to sharks. Uh, that that was how uh, most that many more sharks were killed uh, needlessly uh, as bycatch on long lines than with the same or the other other ways of fishing. Okay. All right. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and uh, oh wait, actually no. Uh, so. If this is also another topic that you don't feel that you want to talk a lot about, but one of the things that I saw WildAid uh, also promotes on their website is kind of dispelling the myth that circulates around health supplements that are made from sharks. So there are supplements that contain uh, cartilage, which is thought to help reduce cancer. There is uh, liver oil, which has other various health benefits and is also used in some cosmetics that I uh, discovered. Um, There's no scientific evidence supporting that these products are healthy for humans um, and actually do some of the things that the companies that make them purport. Um, What are the impact that markets like this have on shark populations? Well, I, I think it's really tragic that this myth about sharks not getting cancer can therefore be transferred to human beings by taking um, supplements of shark oil. There's just absolutely no proof of that. And in fact, oh, a few years ago, maybe six years ago, I was, in fact, about six years ago, I was down at um, the Moat Marine Laboratory with Jeannie Clark and um, before, before she passed away and talking to the scientists down there, uh, Dr. Carl Lure, who has been doing a lot of research on sharks and their immune system. And the, the fact is, sharks are very good healers, um, and they do have extraordinarily strong immune systems. But this, but, but this is on a molecular level, and um, by just ingesting shark oil, you're not going to get that kind of benefit um, from the shark oil. So he is working, along with other scientists, on uh, really analyzing, uh, as I say, on a molecular level, how sharks' immune systems are so strong. And they're doing some experiments in the lab uh, and showing that they're making some progress and they're combining with some drug companies um, working to see whether there is a way to use um, shark DNA or shark molecules or shark immune system um, strengths for human beings, but we're a long way from that happening. And it um, also has to be FDA tested. What? It should be like FDA tested. Like a lot of the supplements that are on the market are put out by companies. They don't have it. They haven't actually gone yeah. through any rigorous testing. I mean, supplements, I'm sure most people know, you know, that, that so many supplements are, are promoted by, by companies and there's been no testing at all. And certainly that's the case with shark oil, with shark cartilage, 
um, there is just no proof at all, and there are many, many um, good scientists that are working to try to find whether there are any benefits um, and whether they can be used in, in some way scientifically to help human beings, but we're a long way off mm. from that happening. So I hope people just will not fall for this by nothing to do with um, shark cartilage or shark oil, and certainly... Please, please, please don't have shark fin soup if you go to a restaurant. Absolutely. Regrettably, I use the term shark attack in front of Wendy Benchley. Old habits die hard. Okay, here we go. Uh, So I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, shark attacks. Is that that something uh, that you feel comfortable talking about? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, people were afraid of sharks before Jaws, but the story emphasized a fear that many of us uh, have of the unknown. Uh, Although the international shark attack file, uh, according to the international shark attack file, shark attacks have actually increased in recent years. However, fatal attacks have decreased. Do you have any idea of what's causing these shifts? I I think um, shark attacks, first of all, I just would like to say about shark attacks that I think that newspapers and magazines and people who talk about sharks should talk about a shark bite, not a shark attack, because most bites that a shark makes is just to test whether the animal they're biting is worth their effort to come back and consume it. And in so many cases, uh, when a shark bites a human, it is just that, a bite, he goes away and does not come back. Now, for the human, of course, it is, can be tragic because if you hit a vein or an artery, especially an artery, um, it can mean that the, the person dies. So I, I, I do feel that, that um, people are beginning to understand this about sharks, certainly up in Cape Cod where... There have been, um, there, there has been one shark bite where the person survived, and then sadly there was one this summer where the young man did die. But the people on the Cape and on the northeast shore up there are, are very aware that they are in the shark's territory when they go swimming. Uh, the seals were protected, I think, about 30 years ago, and so now there are so many seals there along the coast that has brought in a lot of great white sharks. And it's very, very, um, I, I think it's quite wonderful the way people are now approaching this issue. They, they have a great white shark um, alliance uh, that educates people. They, ha- they have boats now that go out and look for great whites. People who go swimming realize that the ocean is not theirs and their territory alone. It is the sharks and the seals' territory, and they have to be very wise and careful when they swim. So this is a, a, a whole new way of approaching the ocean and our place in the ocean. And, and do remember that if there are more shark bites, nowadays, that there are so many more millions of people in the ocean swimming. When you think about it, 100 years ago or 150 years ago, there, there was, I mean, swimming was just not what it is now. Yeah. Um, so now we have 
millions of people in the ocean enjoying the ocean as they could and should, but we do have to have respect for the fact that we are in the shark's environment and it is his world and we need to, to swim wise, wisely. Now, we actually had um, a shark attack uh, this past summer in um, just north of San Diego City in a town called Encinitas. So uh, the shark attack involving the young teenager and the 11-foot shark um, had just happened when I did the interviews for both Wendy and for Heidi, which is why they come up in both interviews. But this is, again, the 11-foot white shark that bit Keen Webry Haynes. And Keen, you were an absolute trooper with the press. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a teenager. I want to say he was a third, uh, four, maybe 15-year-old boy, but um, he's been great. He's in the hospital saying, sharks are amazing. I was in his habitat. Like it's, I think it's also the attitude a lot of um, shark bite um, survivors where you know if they come out of the water and they're like, no, this is one of the risks, it's, um, it's, it's a good message to send. <laughs> I, I, I honestly think that the West Coast um, has has been um, had that at, had the attitude. I think the West Coast has had that attitude about sharks for many years, and the East Coast of the United States is now having to catch up. The Northeast Coast, yeah, um, because we we just didn't have that many great white sharks around until the seal colonies began to uh, proliferate. So it is a new age, and thank heavens, it is a new age when it comes to people's attitudes about sharks. You know, Peter, when he wrote Jaws, um, Peter had done a lot of research on sharks and shark behavior, but there was not that much research and information out there in the early 70s. Um, He did after... Yeah. No, go right ahead. Well, I can I can stress the whole Peter thing completely. You know, do a whole separate separate section on on that. So maybe we want to talk more about shark attacks because yeah, um, yeah. Um, it, it is a complicated um, situation. And as you said in one of your notes, uh, the fatalities are not happening as much, and. Um, I'm not even sure myself. Uh, so you've looked that up. I guess so you know that statistic. I I I was unsure of that statistic. But, um, yeah, um, it's. I think it's also because it's different species of sharks that are biting. So we're getting more shark bites. Uh, but it's more. I think it's because of what you said. There's just more humans in the water than there have been previously, and so more uh, sharks are getting curious, but we're not good food. <laughs> you know, we don't have a high fat content. And I think a lot of the times, as you said, sharks taste. And so um, we also have better access to medicine. So fatal shark attacks are less common just simply because people, you know, like the response time is so much quicker. You know, the lifeguards are on the beat yeah. immediately and the, you know, the kids in the hospital and people just have a much higher chance of survival. Um, all right. So we touched a little bit on news cycles, um, because, you know, Peter did a lot of advocation, like work after Jaws was published to kind of promote, um, 
shark conservation. After the success of Jaws, uh, Peter and your family uh, really became powerful advocates for shark conservation. Um, and in April of 2000, Peter, Peter, sorry, uh, Peter wrote an article for National Geographic uh, trying to help turn public opinion and highlighting per- and highlighting people that actually worked uh, with white sharks. Uh, however, the efforts were still didn't really stop the news cycles from hyping up shark attacks. And as I put in the email to you in 2001, uh, Time Magazine even declared it the summer of the shark because there was one particularly bad shark attack off of the coast of Florida. Um, How do you wish, outside of maybe calling it shark bites, uh, that the popular news cycle framed shark stories? When Time Magazine did that cover in 2001, saying that it was the year of the shark attack, Peter was so furious because he knew the statistics and that there had only been one, one shark attack. And so he wrote a whole book called Shark Life um, or Shark Couple, uh, talking about how, how irresponsible uh, the press and, and magazines and newspapers have been and had been, always saying, it's a shark attack, it's a monster, it's a, you know, using all these these words that should not be used in conjunction with the apex predator in the ocean. Because that apex predator is just doing what he is meant <laughs> to do, and that is to feed himself and survive and make babies. And uh, it, it, it really astonished Peter that, that people would approach sharks that way and and for us it's like people would never say for a lion the monster lion in the serengeti they you know they know that lions are the apex predator in the serengeti and there's very respectful uh stories and conversation about them so that is the way we should be talking about sharks um and i i think that um I think the press has gotten much better, uh, at least in the United States. I just did an interview with uh, the BBC in London um, because in in the UK, they still always say it's the monster and the shark attack, and they still use all of these pejorative, exaggerated words to talk about sharks. So um, there's a whole movement in the UK to try to get them to be a little more reasonable and scientific and and uh, and not exaggerate. I mean, you know, let's use the facts and not exaggerate everything. All right, that's great. Um, so I can talk much more about Jaws and the background and and how we got going. And, that kind of thing, if you if you want to, you were mentioning that in some of your notes. Um, uh, you mean in terms of uh, how you got going in shark conservation as a result of Jaws? Uh, well, yeah, that. But but also, it's it's very interesting to me that that um, even back in seventy two and seventy three. Wait a minute, I'm just trying to remember this phrase that people use. I'll start this again. Oh, I know. It's the rogue shark. Okay. Uh. When Peter was researching Jaws, he read everything he could get his hands on about 
the, the quote, rogue shark phenomenon. And that was a theory back then that once a shark tasted a human being, it would come back and, and go after that human being and other human beings and just hang around. So he was very careful he, when he wrote Jaws not to go along with that theory because it had been debunked by really good scientists. And so then when, when Steven Spielberg made the movie and basically based the movie on that rogue shark theory, mm. Peter fought really hard against it, but he lost. Peter lost <laughs> the battle, but that's okay. I mean, that was the way Spielberg wanted to approach it. But um, it, it was upsetting to Peter because what he was trying to say is that these are great white sharks. These are un- unbelievable, magnificent apex predators in the ocean. And they are just doing what they do. So it's random chance that you might be there and be bitten by a great white. Um, so I think that was a very interesting little uh, controversy uh, or disagreement that Peter had with Stephen. And, and the fact is, you know, Stephen did an absolutely fabulous film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Peter had many, many bravos and compliments for Stephen, and we all did, because it was a, a, just a terrific movie. Uh, and I think I've heard from just so many, and Peter heard Peter heard from so many hundreds and thousands of people around the world who became intrigued with the ocean after Jaws. I'm really excited by the ocean. Oh, yeah, I'm one of them. I think... Like, when I was a kid and I watched Jaws, like, I was terrified, but I was hoping to see sharks whenever I went down to the beach. Like, it's one of those things where it kind of created this morbid curiosity that kind of blossomed into a real affection for the ocean. Well, I'm pleased to hear that you're, you're one of them because <laughs> I, I, I think that it did excite so many people. And I know that we got letters not only from people who became marine biologists, but also from teachers who said, oh, I've used JAWS, the book, for my students to read. Um, it's their you know, a wonderful adult novel. It gets them all excited about the ocean. They want to go and do some research and find out more about it. So I feel that that Jacques Cousteau showed everybody the beauty of the ocean, and, and then Jaws came along and showed people how exciting studying the ocean could be and how important it was. And then as we went along, we realized how vulnerable the ocean and that we, you know, we needed to shape up and stop using it as a killing ground and a dump and throwing toxins in and et cetera, et cetera. So I I think that, that for Peter, he very quickly saw the devastation that was happening to the ocean as he went on some of these trips. And he always said that he would never have written Jaws the way he did if he had had the kind of science and the kind of information that eventually accumulated 15, 20 years later. 
And I, I want to touch on that because one of the things that is very different between the, the movie and the book is the shark behavior. Because in the book, the shark behavior is much more, the shark is there and it's hungry and it's going to sense what's around it. Meanwhile, in the movie, there's much more of a, a chase, like the, the shark is actively hunting um, the, 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 the humans, which is, I think, one of the major um, theme differences between the two. Um, but there is a lot more it research. Peter and I had gone on 
a few trips. We had had one absolutely spectacular trip to South Australia uh, right after Jaws came out. We went down there for the American Sportsman and did uh, a cage dive. Now, in those days, that was the early days of cage diving with great whites, and Rodney Fox was the one who put this together. Rodney was uh, an abalone fisherman who had been almost killed by a great white. Truly, the great white had chopped his whole middle, his torso. And the only reason Rodney survived was because he had a wetsuit on, and the wetsuit kept his guts in. Wow. (laughs) It got him to a hospital, and there was a surgeon there who put, I don't know, 300, 400 stitches into him, and he survived. In any case, Rodney put together this American sportsman show. Uh, Peter and I went down, and in in those days, they had a half a horse uh, hanging up for bait. It's like Jurassic Park. Beautiful. (laughs) This, yeah, this beautiful great white shark came in uh, and started to, you know, chomp at this horse. And we had lots of chum, and it was very, very primitive. And actually, I had I had quite an experience because I was the only woman on the boat. And the Australians had banished me to the upper deck because I was a woman. So there I was looking down at all the cameramen, saw Peter get into the cage saw the great white coming by and the white came up to take a bite of the horse but missed and instead chomped down on the line that was holding Peter's cage to the stern of the boat. (laughs) So the shark was, and it got caught in the shark's teeth. So the, the white was just furious and started to slash around and poor Peter was in the cage going topsy-turvy and upside down and being slammed around himself and I screamed from the upper deck get that line out of the shark's mouth but as happens often with cameramen they just were so intent on the action that they really weren't concentrating on what was going on so I came hustling down from the top deck and when the shark came up again and opened her opened her mouth to take another bite I grabbed the rope and yanked as hard as I could and pulled it out of her mouth, and she sank down and was perfectly free to swim around. All the commotion stopped, the cage stopped topsy-turvy, and Peter was okay. And then when he came up and said, what was that all about? Um, I and you weren't scared to do any of that. Day. You weren't scared? Like, none of that frightened you? Like, because you, like, you felt confident enough to take a, basically a rope out of a shark, away from a shark's mouth? Well, it was my husband. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and my survival instincts for him, it just took a hold of me. And and also, I was in a boat. The shark was in the water, and she was coming up quite consistently to try to take a bite of this horse. And so I just, you know, I just plain did it. And, Good um, for you. Because I, I knew somebody had to do it. And, and it worked. So lucky me. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's incredible. And I think that it's, um, amazing that you had the, the forethought when everybody else is just trying to think of getting the shot, you're like, well, let's get the shark away and stop. Let's, let's take the panic level down and get the shark to calm down a little bit. <laughs> this is a good reason for a wife to go on a trip, on some <laughs> of these dive trips, because especially in those days, there were, I, they, 
the cameraman had often lunatic ideas about how to get good shots, uh, shots of sharks. There was one one trip where I was not there, and um, <laughs> they said to Peter, look it, we're in the open ocean, and I don't know how we're ever going to get the sharks to come around this buoy. So why don't we just put bleeding fish inside your BC, and you go swim out there and attract the sharks? That is one of the craziest <laughs> ideas I've ever heard. <laughs> no, 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 I, I won't do that. Um, absolutely not. And then when he came home and told me about that, he said, you know, Okay, he said, I'm channeling my inner Wendy. <laughs> would she think this was a good idea or not? No, she would not think this is a good idea. Oh, well, I'm happy he thought of you because, yeah, that is, that, objectively, that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> well, you know how it goes when you're, when you're the, the talent, as they say. You're, you're trying to please people and you're trying to make a good movie or a good show, and sometimes you just sort of lose your judgment. Um, so, and, and Peter had many, um, you know, very, very dangerous experiences, which he put into his book, Shark Trouble. Mm. But, um, there's no, no time for us to go into those. Um, but you yourself are quite an accomplished scuba diver. Like you've done a lot of, uh, ocean conservation work actually, um, not only as a scuba diver, but you've, uh, gone kind of into submersible, uh, in, um, sorry, submersibles just in general. Uh, do you have any particularly favorite memories of doing stuff like that? I, I have just so loved my time in the ocean and the trips that I've gone on. And I think, I think the most wonderful time I had was when um, Peter and I went out for our 43rd wedding anniversary to Guadalupe island mm. on the coast of san diego yeah to swim with the great whites and that was in the early days of doing that swim also and but for me at least i had been on trips and by the time i got into the cave sort of at the end of the shoot all i would see would be the tail end of a great white you know taking mm. off so when peter asked me what would you like to do for our anniversary? I said, I would love to go swim with the Great Whites in Guadalupe. So, um, so that was just an exciting event because for the first time I saw what people were talking about, how beautiful they are and, and their, the way they move with such grace and speed. And they barely, that you barely know that they're even, uh, sweeping their tail around, and they came so close. Sometimes we had four and five big female uh, great whites come right by the cage, and you were it's able amazing. to put your hand out and stroke along their side. And as you know, if you stroke them from head to toe, their skin feels like a, a wonderful, fine yeah. velvet glove. And if you stroke the other way, uh, those denticles in the skin you can tear your hand up. are very scraped. Yeah. yeah, and uh, so that that was a really a wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, another time that I really enjoyed was going in a submersible in the Sea of Cortez. I was with the New England Aquarium and with Dr. Greg Stone, and we were going back to take a look at some of the seamounts there because 
we had been on an earlier trip, 20 years earlier, for um, the hammerhead shark migration, when thousands and thousands of hammerheads would come into the Sea of Cortez. So we were returning to take a look and see what the marine life was like, and, and it was um, pretty bleak, I'll have mm, to say. Yeah. But I had the unique privilege of... Um, of getting into an ROV that was piloted by an Israeli military pilot who was just absolutely crackerjack. And what I loved about doing the ROV was you didn't have to have a regulator. You weren't sucking on air uh, that way. You were in this lovely little bubble um, in peace and quiet, and you just slowly sank down into the ocean and could look and... It was so comfortable and gorgeous that I I lost any fear that I might have had as as we went down. I didn't go very deep, but but you know, I don't know, 150 feet. It was it was great, just sensational. So I I've been very fortunate to have some of these great experiences on the ocean. Yeah, that that sounds remarkable. It makes me want to take another trip down to the Sea of Cortez myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I have heard. I have heard recently that, that the hammerheads are are coming back. I don't know. Have you heard yeah, that? Yeah. No. They're in general shark populations because there's been a lot. Um, I'm gonna cut off here because uh, Wendy eventually asked me about hammerhead sharks, and I told her a bunch of nonsense that isn't true. So I'm gonna tell you guys the truth right here. Um, in Southern California, we have skelt and smooth hammerhead sharks, and um. According to the International Union of Conservation of Nature, or IUNC, and their red list, hammerhead sharks are declining or of unknown status, which means they're not really doing great, uh, which is unfortunate. Anyway, back to the interview. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the White Shark Cafe that is off the coast of um, California here. Yeah, well, we don't have to. I just... You know, you had mentioned it, and I was so excited about it, and um, and just excited to be working with the Aspen Institute and and um, and Barbara Bach and the, yeah. the whole gang on on this possible possible uh, marine protected area out there. Um, it would, you know, it would be it would be phenomenal if it could happen. So it would be... So, I don't know. I mean, if you want to include it, we could we could go into it. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to be talking about it with um, the other interviewee for this episode, uh, Dr. Heidi Dewar. She's... Because she, uh, she was the lead author behind the Northeast Population Assessment of White Sharks, uh, and her report, report goes into uh, the research that had been done already about the, uh, the White Shark Cafe or SOFA. <laughs> it's called SOFA in her report, but I understand, like... Colloquially, it's been called the White Shark Cafe. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> hey. sorry. No, no, I was, I was just sort of laughing because I think it's such a marvelous name, the White Shark Cafe. Yeah. But I think it's very confusing for other people. When I talk to friends about it, they just, you know, they there's this blank look. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so then I have to go into a long song and dance to explain it. So, um, but that's all right. Uh, I, I think for for um, for the marine community, the White Shark Cafe is just a great uh, a great label or a great name because yeah. it, it just makes 
makes it seem very special, which it is. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I like about it is that you know, cafes are a place where you can get food or you can meet friends. And we don't really know exactly what white sharks are doing there. We know that it's a lot of males that head there, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, a, a rich area for food. Like there, there aren't a lot of marine mammals. There's a lot of squid, um, but it doesn't seem like they're going there because it's a hot spot for food. And it might be a hot spot to like meet and greet other white sharks, you know, for reproductive purposes. But we really don't know yet. And since cafes are kind of places that people meet for various reasons, I think it's a, it's an apt name. Yes. Yes, it is. Actually on the, um, on the video of the two hour video that was done at, um, at the Smithsonian at Pat Ocean Hall, uh, Barbara Block and some of the other scientists and Sylvia, talk about the fact that that uh, the mid-level there was was really quite full of mm. biomass. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, yeah, they did. Um, so, and Sylvia kept pointing out that it, it's wonderful that we have these uh, satellite images of the ocean, but it's... It, it only gives us a feel for what's happening in the upper uh, the upper level of the ocean, and it doesn't reach down. So, so that was the main, but you could ask uh, the scientists, you know, I'm sorry, I've forgotten their name, whether I'm really correct on this, but this is my understanding, that, uh, that what was exciting was, first of all, they tracked great whites and other, what, I guess, blues and some other sharks there. Yeah. So that was exciting that they were able to track that and they they got enough monitors on enough sharks so that they really could show dramatically this congregation of sharks. But then the other thing that was very exciting to them was that this kind of research off of a, of a boat was able to show them that there was a level below the surface level where there was um, marine biomass and that there was a lot of available food. Yeah. Uh, now, whether whether the data will show that the sharks were eating uh, a great deal, they, they still, I don't think they've crunched all the data yet. And I must say, I was sort of sorry that they didn't find that great whites from mating. I was hoping yeah. that that would be, you know, that we'd be able to say, ah, this is the place where the great whites mate and, um, and make it even more important. Well, it fits, doesn't it? Us. I mean, the gestation cycle we think is between 15 and 18 months. And with the way that the animals kind of cycle through that area and through the Hawaiian and California coasts, like with their, the migration patterns that are known, it, it makes sense that they'd be mating there, but it just, they're not. So who knows where they're mating? Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. Oh, well, it's, I mean, it'll be great because the, uh, the, it was just this past summer that they put out the, the um, what is it, the Schmitz Oceanographic Institute, they had the survey that went out. Was it this past summer or the summer before? It was just this past summer. Yeah, so I'm sure that we'll be getting a lot more information in the coming years. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, absolutely. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to go, um, I'm going to be giving a speech in Milan at a film festival 
at the end of the month, and then I'm going to go from there to Bauer Ocean in Bali, in Indonesia. Mm. So, uh, anyway, I'm going to catch up with a lot of people there. I'll catch up with Jane Lipchenko and... and um, Maybe I don't know whether Barbara Brock will be there, but but I'll find out. Um, you know, I'll ask everybody I see uh, what kind of information they're getting from all their data. Yeah. So maybe and we'll have some good news. <laughs> but I I don't know whether you've um, seen the the, the two hour video. I think it would be so exciting if UNESCO made this a World Heritage Site. Uh, there are apparently five different marine sites that UNESCO is looking at and the Great White Shark Cafe is one of them and I think it's the hope of many people that because the Great Whites are such an iconic species that they will they will make this one of the first ones and certainly the information that Barbara Brock and the rest of the scientists brought back um, have given enough information to UNESCO to proceed ahead with, we hope, designation. So the representative um, from UNESCO who was at the Smithsonian was very positive about uh, the possibility that this will happen. Yeah, and because it's not yeah. just white sharks, it's a bunch of different species. You mentioned blues before, but I know there's several different species of sharks that use the area, and it's also you know sperm whales use the area. A lot of different types of squid use the area. It's I mean it's dubbed the Great White um, Shark Cafe because those are kind of the pioneer species that we know used the area. But it seems like it's used by like we don't really know all of the benefits that this area has, like what all of the different animals that are using it. Yes, yes, I'm glad you brought that up, that it's a, an area of many different species. So it's a very rich area, and all the more reason why it should be protected. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to say that there were a lot of longliners out there crisscrossing this area, catching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of fish. So uh, we've, we've got to do this. We've just got to do it quickly before they wipe the whole area out. Yeah. Um, just a clarification point. You mentioned the name Sylvia before. Were you t speaking of Sylvia Earle? Oh, yeah, Sylvia Earle. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted she's, to... Um, Sylvia... Excuse me? No, no, no. I just wanted to make sure. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that unless you have any questions for me or you have any other points that you wanted to make sure this interview covered, um, I've reached the end of my uh, my list. Okay, great. I'm happy. I thank you very much for, for including me in this. It's, it's really fun to do, and I enjoy it, and I love, I love talking with scientists and learning more as I go along. So. But it, is, it was an absolute pleasure, and um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Emily, thank you so much for including me in this. I've enjoyed it greatly. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. -bye. Bye. And that is it. Thank you again to Wendy Benchley for calling in and speaking with us. It was so cool to talk to you. Uh, in the description for this episode, I will have links to the Smithsonian video that Wendy referenced featuring Barbara Block, uh, some information about the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and a National Geographic issue that was written by Peter Benchley that I think really summarizes quite well um, 
his thoughts on where shark conservation should head. Uh, thank you again to Derek Acosta for helping putting this all together, John Wanzer, who recorded this interview, and to Emily Jankowski for her time and her help. <laughs>